helping clients meet their financial goals and prepare for the future, Schroders actively and responsibly manages investments. The world is forever changing, and we understand the need to adapt and evolve in line with what matters most to our clients. Hi, I'm Robin Amos. Here with me today is Andy Rothman, an investment strategist at Fund Group Matthews Asia. In addition to having spent two decades at China-focused investment firms, Andy previously headed the Macroeconomics and Domestic Policy Office of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Rob. So, uh, Andy, I thought you know it's fascinating to uh, speak with an investment specialist with actual on-the-ground experience, uh, you know, diplomatic experience of China, especially given uh, everything that's been going on in the last you know, few months and years and, and increased tensions as well, uh, geopolitical tensions between the West and China. And I was wondering, you know, just to start off with really, um, you know, if you could perhaps talk a bit about what are the key lessons about China uh, that you took away from your diplomatic career? I think you spent 17 years in the US Foreign Service, isn't that right? That's right. Hmm. Okay, great question. Um, I, I think that the opportunity that I had to work on and in China back in the early 1980s and then through the 90s before coming into this industry was, was really a helpful perspective because, you know, when I first arrived in China, actually the first time was in 1980 when I was a university student. And I went back in 1984 to, as a very, very junior diplomat at the American consulate in Guangzhou, otherwise known as Canton. And at that time, China was a disaster. Um, there wasn't enough food to eat. Uh, people were poor, even in the wealthiest city at the time, which was where I was working. Um, and there was really little hope of things getting significantly better. And, but it was, I also had an opportunity in that job to meet a huge number of just ordinary average Chinese people and, and get some insight into what they had been through and what their expectations were. This was part of my job of just interviewing as many people as possible who wanted to leave and, uh, and, go, to, and go to the United States and join family there. And then I was back in, in the 90s and seeing the progression from a place where you just could not have imagined a commercial interest, especially from foreign investors or from foreign financial institutions to one that now accounts for 40% of global growth in a very short period of time probably is one of the reasons why I tend to be generally optimistic, see things in China from the glass half full rather than the glass half empty perspective. Because if you've only been looking at China for the last several years, you could say, well, not that much dramatic has happened in terms of, let's say, personal freedom or economic growth. But if you go back just over the few decades that I've been doing this, the change is just phenomenal. Um, for example, when I was first working at the American consulate in Guangzhou, there were basically no private companies at all. You, you, you really couldn't even find a privately owned restaurant. Occasionally a farmer would come into the city and pop up a restaurant in somebody's apartment, but he'd get shut down and chased out of town pretty quickly. Today, uh, about 90% of urban employment is with small entrepreneurial private companies, the kinds of companies that we tend to invest in. Almost all of the net new job creation is from small private entrepreneurial companies because the state sector is still shrinking. In terms of standard of living, um, you know, when you drive into town from the airport, you would roll over 
the rice that the farmers would put down on the road because you were helping them thrash it, which meant when you got to your restaurant, you got a bowl full of rice with a lot of rocks and twigs in it as well. Um, this was a place where people who had family coming from, let's say, Hong Kong, they asked them to bring stuff that they couldn't afford or couldn't get access to, things like an electric radio or an electric fan or a bicycle. Today, this is a country with a middle-class population the size of the entire U.S. population, a country that accounts for about a third of global luxury sales. So I think for me, having that longer-term perspective has been really helpful. You've been writing recently about, um, uh, you know, the effectiveness of, I think, China's lockdown measures um, and the impact of those on the uh, Chinese economy and also you know, the potential perhaps for uh, another wave of the virus to uh, impact uh, China. How effective have China's lockdown measures been in limiting damage to the economy? Well, I think that the Chinese experience in dealing with uh, COVID-19 and the SARS virus that created that is really instructive about some of the things that are working well and some of the things that are not working so well in China. Um, the parts, some of the parts that were working well at the beginning were, you know, if you go back to the first SARS outbreak uh, about 15 years ago or so when I was living in Shanghai, um, the, in the follow-up to that, the Chinese government invited the U.S. CDC and other public health officials to come in and help them set up a uh, disease outbreak warning system, which would collect information around the country, send it up to Beijing so they could get a better handle on the early stages. And this really worked. Um, this is why in December, teams were sent down from Beijing to Wuhan, where the disease was first identified, and to start working at it. So it's a reflection of the Chinese government wanting to do a better job of providing a better life for its people. But then the not so good part was that there were local officials who obstructed that investigation because they thought they would be blamed for an outbreak of the disease and it was going to get in the way of their holiday celebrations and maybe get in the way of their promotions. Um, and, and, and so that's another element of what China has to work on in the future. And then you move into January and, and, and officials in Beijing knew that they had something serious going on. Um, they started talking to the WHO in very early January. The head of the Chinese CDC called his U.S. counterpart to talk about this strange new pneumonia that they had. But, you know, then there were some delays in actually taking steps to mitigate the spread while they debated how serious it was. But we also have to recognize these are problems that we've seen in other uh, countries as well and other in, in democracies as well. So I think there's good and bad part. But after January 23rd, when the central government officials shut down completely the city of Wuhan. That's a city with a population bigger than that in, of New York City. That was a really clear sign that they were taking it seriously. And while we can argue that the steps they took, effectively barricading people in their homes for a while, would not be acceptable in our societies, in, in the UK or in the US, we also have to recognize that each society is a bit different. Um, we have in the United States fights over whether people should wear masks to help protect other people from this virus. And in other countries, people are saying, what? That's just insane. Everybody should just wear a mask. So I think it is a reflection that there are always going to be 
differences in governance systems and cultural experiences that we have to adjust to when we're dealing with other places. And we have to find ways to solve these problems together rather than just argue about whose philosophy or approach or system is better. Well, I would argue that the pandemic is the single most important economic issue in every country in the world right now. Because the consequences of the pandemic, both the clinical consequences and the policy responses of shutting down businesses are the reason why every country is in difficulty right now. And getting that virus under control is going to be, in my view, the determining factor as to when and how economies emerge from this virus-induced recession. And I'm afraid that a lot of governments just don't understand that. They think they can tough it out and that they'll out-talk the virus. Uh, but if you, so if you look at the Chinese experience, it's easy in, in the UK or the US to say, well, we could never do what, what China did because they basically locked people in their homes, even if they didn't wish to be barricaded in. But there were only a few cities like Wuhan where they did that. In most of the rest of the country, it was more about social distancing and masks and, and an enormous amount of testing. And yeah, we can't transplant exactly what China did, but look at what happened in democracies like South Korea and, and New Zealand. Um, they've been able to get this under control. Taiwan is a, a thriving, wealthy democracy. They've been able to get it under control with serious mitigation efforts. And, you know, we, these can't be directly applied in every place because every place is a little bit different. But the lessons of massive testing, of providing PPE for everybody who needs it, of contact tracing, of then isolation, they're really, really clear. And I think anybody who ignores those lessons is doomed to have the virus continue for an extended period of time and therefore is doomed to not get out of the recession anytime soon. Which, which sectors uh, within China have been worst hit by the outbreak? Well, at the beginning, everybody was hit. Hmm. Uh, you know, looking at the first quarter data that came out, I wrote back in April that it was the worst economic data the Chinese had published since the Tang Dynasty. Uh, a, a, a little bit sarcastic in, in that um, I'm getting kind of beaten down, tired of hearing people say, well, China's not growing as fast as it was 10 years ago, because they seem to ignore the base effect. They're growing at 6% now. Um, on top of the base that's built up is even better for investors than growing at double digit rate 10 years ago, uh, because these numbers are multiplied on a base that creates even better opportunity for us to invest in companies doing business there. So everything was hit because everything was shut down. But if you look at the data we have right now through uh, May, you can see that there's been a V-shaped recovery in just about everything. Uh, CapEx spending by privately owned companies is bouncing back. And that's really important because these are companies that are largely cut off from the banking system and the capital markets, um, other than the relatively small share of those that are listed and that we can invest in. So it means that these are entrepreneurs who have enough of their own savings and retained earnings and have enough confidence in the coming quarters that they're investing again. Uh, we've seen the Chinese consumer come back really, really strongly. Auto sales, and we have the June numbers for that already, are up double digits year over year. 
the fastest growth rates we've seen since the, the middle of 2018. Uh, new home sales are, are back even stronger than they were a year ago. Um, and it's not just those big ticket items that kind of reflect where the middle class and the wealthy feel and how, they, how much money they have. But overall in May, uh, online sales of goods were up 22% year over year. And that accounts for about a quarter of total good sales in China. So I think overall, uh, Chinese consumers have saved enough money that even though their income growth has taken a, a big hit in the last several months because of the virus, they're willing to dip into that a little bit because they have enough confidence that their jobs and their salaries, their wages are coming back and that the government's doing a pretty good job of keeping things under control. So I think that China is not going to get back to normal, the Chinese economy this year. I think it's going to be back to about 80% of normal for the rest of the year. And um, the last 20% is going to be the hardest because that's the stuff that requires people to gather in confined spaces. So the things that are lagging behind are things like restaurants and bars and movie theaters and, and sports venues, because people are just, even though China has it under control better than most places, people are still a little bit nervous about that. So that I think is probably going to be a, an issue until we have an extended period of time where the virus is under control, very few new cases, or the, or the global pandemic comes under control, or there is an effective and widely available vaccine. Interesting. Do you think um, the, the geopolitical kind of rivalry between the West and China might lead to a reversal of China's integration into the world economy? Uh, great question. I, I don't think that's going to be the end result hmm. because China's not the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. Uh, this is not a regime that has an ideology which is fundamentally opposed to the West. It's become an increasingly market-driven entrepreneurial place. It's not trying to export an ideology. They just don't want people picking at their own system of governance. They don't have any allies. There's nothing like the Warsaw Pact. And Soviet Union was a negligible factor in the global economy back then, and China is a huge factor. Um, on average, over the last decade, China has accounted for about a third of global economic growth, according to IMF data. That's a larger share of global growth coming from China than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. In fact, last year, China alone accounted for 40% of global growth. So the idea that we can decouple from that is, is just fantasy, and I think is an idea that's floated by people who don't want to make the effort to raise their own game at home, to fix their own problems at home, and would rather say, ah, if it wasn't for unfair competition from China, everything would be great here. Right. Well, that's, that's just not borne out by the reality. And the other part of the story is, how much economic leverage do we have on China? The Chinese economy has gone through an incredible structural change over the last decade or so. Uh, this is no longer an economy driven by cheap, low-wage, low-skill manufacturing. In fact, last year was the eighth consecutive year in which the tertiary part of Chinese GDP, that's the consumer and services, domestic demand part, that was the biggest part for eight consecutive years through last year. Last year, 
almost 60% of China's economic growth came from domestic consumption. So it's increasingly more like our economies. And as a result, um, we really need to think carefully about how much leverage we have. So, you know, uh, one question I get often is if U.S.-China relations continue to worsen, which is what I expect is going to happen at least through the end of this year, or if there's a COVID-driven global recession, will that block the V-shaped economic recovery that I've been talking about happening in China? And, and my answer is no, uh, because China is no longer a trade-driven economy. Uh, if you go back to 2007, for example, before the global financial crisis, the gross value of Chinese exports was equal to about 35% of its GDP. Last year, it was 17%. Another way to look at this is net exports. This is the, the concept that economists prefer to use when looking at the importance of trade. Net exports means the countries, the value of their exports minus their imports. Over the last five years, on average, net exports have contributed zero to China's GDP growth. Hmm. So this also influences the way that we at Matthews Asia invest for our clients in, in China. We are looking primarily at Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese consumers. Mm -hmm. That has been so far well insulated from the tariff dispute that Trump has put in place. And I think it will continue to be well insulated from a further decline in US-China relations. Sure, I mean, but do you see any, you know, I mean, that, that's, your, that's your view, but do you see any potential uh, risks emerging from uh, geopolitical disputes to, to that thesis? Uh, I do. Um, there are, but I think it's on a, on a more bottom up or micro level. So what we've been very careful to do is to look at all of the Chinese companies that we invested in our different strategies for our clients and try our best to make sure that we don't own shares in any companies that might get caught up in this squeeze. A company, for example, that might get caught up because it's a tech company and it relies on intellectual property IP from the US or, or advanced equipment from the US that it can't get anywhere else. So we've been very careful to look at that on behalf of our clients. But frankly, I think the greatest risk from the trajectory that the Trump administration is on right now with respect to its China policy is to Americans. Because many Americans, I'd say most Americans, have benefited significantly from China's rise. It has turned into the world's greatest consumer story, and it's been a fantastic market for American exporters. And that's an important part of our economy here in the U.S. And it's also the rise of goods made in China and, and sold into the United States has also helped keep inflation down. And this has been really important over the last couple of decades for lower income families who spend a higher share of their income on tradable goods. So we need to think about kind of the second and third order consequences of some of these policy steps, which seem to me to be motivated by short-term political gain and fear and misunderstanding rather than motivated by sound economic policy. Another issue sort of related to this, uh, especially sort of in the UK given um, our historic ties to Hong Kong um, has been, you know, uh, you know what what the security uh, crackdown in the the region, you know, 
signifies for the future of, of the of the city and uh, mm. you know whether whether it's uh, sort of place as a uh, you know you know, arguably uh, Asia's sort of preeminent financial center might uh, you know might be challenged uh, I mean do you think um, you know how do you think investors should feel about about what's been going on in Hong Kong? Okay, so I would divide the impact of the national security law that the central government of Beijing has recently imposed upon Hong Kong. Uh, I divide that impact into two different buckets. The first is the impact on the people of Hong Kong. And I think that the, this move with the national security law does represent the end of one country, two systems. I think it does represent a tragic loss of personal and political freedom to the people of Hong Kong. And this is regrettable. But if we look at it from the other perspective of economics and investment, I think the impact is going to be much less significant. Um, Hong Kong's economy has proven very resilient over many challenges over the last hundred years. And I expect it to be resilient again. Uh, I do not think that what we've seen with the national security law represents the Chinese government's desire to shut down or hurt Hong Kong's economy, to stop it from continuing to be Asia's global financial center. I think what they have in mind is they want Hong Kong to continue to thrive and succeed economically and financially under the same kind of bargain that Shanghai has thrived and succeeded in the last couple of decades on the mainland, which is, and that bargain is, you're free to be entrepreneurial and make money as much as possible uh, and improve your standard of living, but you're not free to challenge the, the ruling government. Hmm. And so uh, I believe that this is not going to have a dramatic impact on the Hong Kong economy in the way that it is having a dramatic impact on people's personal and political freedom. And I think also for investors, it's, it's a similar story. Um, you know, companies have figured out how to make a lot of money on the mainland, including foreign companies that are in Hong Kong right now. Mm. And I think they'll figure it out as well in Hong Kong. Have these uh, political developments led Matthews Asia to, uh, you know, change its allocation at all in, in uh, in Hong Kong? Well, we are big investors in companies listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And in fact, I would argue that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange under the current global and political environment is probably going to thrive because an increase, increasingly mainland Chinese companies are, are feeling unwelcome in New York. Yeah. And I think they are already beginning to turn in greater numbers to Hong Kong. We invest in a lot of companies listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but overwhelmingly, those are mainland Chinese companies doing business on the mainland that have listed in Hong Kong to get access to that pool of liquidity. And therefore, I don't see this changing our approach. Uh, as I said earlier, um, we have long been focused on helping our clients make money for their retirements and for their kids and grandkids by investing in Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese people. 
um, because one of our roles is to help investors mitigate all sorts of risks, whether it's fraudulent data reporting or whether it's global politics. And so we're always very conscious of that factor when we make decisions on behalf of our clients. I know that sort of your experience is really with, you know, the U.S.'s relationship with China, but I was wondering um, perhaps uh, if you have any perspective on how you think the U.K. might, you know, how how the U.K. sort of, the U.K. seems to be doing a bit of, um, the U.K. government seems to have been doing a bit of a balancing act between the U.S. and, and China in some respects. Um, uh, and perhaps moving closer to the U.S. on some issues um, recently, uh, you know, uh, declaring that um, it will remove uh, Hawaii equipment from, uh, you know, telling or basically ordering telecoms companies to remove uh, Hawaii equipment from um, uh, uh, their uh, infrastructure. And I was uh, wondering, you know, if you have any perspective on that. I mean, do you think uh, that's a trend that's likely to continue um, or not, possibly? Well, let me talk about that just generally because I'm, I'm not really a student of UK politics. Uh, I think one of the very dangerous consequences of the current US approach towards China is Washington is pressing many countries around the world and in, in Europe and in Asia, China's neighbors, to pick sides. You're either with America or you're, or you're with China. And that is really unfortunate because China, for many of these countries, is a larger trading partner than the United States is. China, for these countries, represents opportunities. Now, there are, of course, risks there. But the idea that this is black and white and that there's either there's only one side or the other is, I think, going is already putting many countries into a difficult position. And now those countries need to decide, are they going to just simply do whatever Washington tells them to do, even if it's not in their country's best interest? Or are they going to push back and, and try and find a workable balancing approach like they have in, in the past? And Specifically, when we talk about Huawei, the, uh, the world's largest producer of 5G telecom gear and one of the largest producers of cell phones in the world, we have to, I think, make a distinction between what are legitimate national security concerns and what are more political concerns for one country or one administration in that one country. And so I think what I'm still waiting to hear, I, I haven't seen this yet, maybe it's out there, is how the UK government has reached the conclusion that Huawei gear used in its telecom system the way it has been used represents a national security threat when for, I think about a decade now, GCHQ, the UK's signal intelligence agency, has said, we're taking apart all the Huawei gear that comes into the country, we're looking at all the software, and we feel, GCHQ says, that in published reports, that as long as the Huawei gear is kept on the periphery of the 5G network, that those risks can be effectively mitigated. Hmm. Um, and so I'm still waiting to hear what has changed in that technical national security argument as opposed to a political argument that's being pushed from my side of the Atlantic.
it sounds like you think other countries as well. This is a more general uh, thing of other countries being forced to pick sides. I mean, do you think, uh, where do you think that potentially might lead? Well, think about a statement that, uh, or look at, look at how things have changed even in the United States in a short period of time. We go back to January. It's not very long ago, January of this year. President Trump was talking about China and said, Xi Jinping and I have our differences, but overall, we love each other. That was around the time when the U.S. signed this big trade deal with China. Now, six months later or so, Secretary of State Pompeo says that the Chinese Communist Party is, is, quote, intent on destruction of Western ideas, Western democracies, Western values. It puts America at risk, end quote. Frankly, that's not the China that I see. Are they open to our values and democratic governance system at home? Of course not. But are they intent on the destruction of Western ideas and values? I, I just don't see evidence of that. And I also think that it's really important for us to all understand recent history. Going back to when Nixon first went to China, the, the U.S. and much of the West has taken approach towards China that we've kind of shorthandedly described as uh, engagement work collaboratively with China on the areas where we have somewhat common interests and use that collaboration as leverage on other places. And, and I think that engagement over the last four decades or so has been really, really successful because the primary objective was not to get China to become a liberal Western democracy. The primary objective, if you go back and read what Nixon and Kissinger talked about why Jimmy Carter brought China, uh, reestablished diplomatic relations with China, why Clinton brought China into the WTO. The primary focuses were first on China's, modifying China's behavior globally so that they would not be a threat to Western democracies. And that's been very successful. Sure, there are squabbles in the East and South China Sea, but that's pretty minor stuff in China's backyard compared to uh, back in the 60s when China was funding and trading revolutionaries around the world. And the other element was to open up Chinese markets, and that's worked really well, too. Um, since China joined the WTO, U.S. exports to China are up over 500% compared to a 100% increase to the, the rest of the world. Um, and it's also succeeded in another element where maybe Western governments didn't care that much, but it's still really important. It has significantly improved the standard of living of most Chinese people. And for most Chinese people, they're living in a much less repressive environment. Now, obviously, we all should have concerns about what's going on in places like Xinjiang and Tibet and Hong Kong now. But how do we get more progress on those areas? Where do we get leverage? Do we get leverage with the Chinese government by saying, we are just implacably ideologically opposed to you and we're going to try and stop you from getting wealthier and stronger at every turn. Is that the way to get more leverage? Because we're going to say, we're going to, we, we don't want you to have globally competitive companies, but by the way, you should listen to us about what's happening in Xinjiang. That's not going to work. But thanks very much for the opportunity to have this conversation today. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. And I'd just like to let your listeners know that 
uh, if they're interested in reading the occasional uh, notes that I put out about the topics that we've been talking about today, uh, especially on what's happening in the Chinese economy, uh, they're available on the MatthewsAsia.com website under the Synology uh, title. Um, that's open to, to everybody. And uh, if anyone wants to get on the mailing list for distribution to that, uh, they can just get in touch with the Matthews Aza office in London. And our website, of course, also has information about our, uh, our strategies that are available for investors in the UK. Thanks very much. Yep. Uh, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Schroders is built on 200 years of experience and expertise. We partner with our clients, constructing innovative products and solutions across private assets and alternatives, solutions, mutual funds, institutional and wealth management. By combining our commitment to active management and focus on sustainability, our strategic capabilities are designed to deliver positive outcomes. With over 5,000 talented staff across 35 locations, we are able to stay close to our clients and understand their needs.